Hi, my name's Dave Bolton, and welcome to the Man Marking Podcast, where we're asking, where's the talking, lads? You only get into, out the game where you put into it, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I put everything into it, I could, and still do, for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. Do you regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much, yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Hello and welcome to Man Marking Series 3, Episode 1. Today we're speaking with Dave Bolton. Let's find out a little bit more about who he is. I'm a uh, former athlete. Uh, ex-military, served a tour in Air Ops Iraq. Uh, I was a high-flying detective sergeant tackling uh, gun crime in a covert unit within Merseyside Police. I've survived um, being crushed by uh, an articulated lorry and also um, came through, uh, overcome cancer twice and I'm currently outliving a terminal cancer diagnosis presently. Joining me today, as usual, is the chaps. I've got Ryan and I've got Ant, fellas. How are we doing? Really well, thanks, mate. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Ant, yourself, how are we keeping? Yeah, I'm good, mate. Yeah, just waiting for Ryan to go first there. <laughs> you excited? You were very excited in the uh, the pre-match analysis show we did. Oh, I am you excited, were, you yeah. excited? Yeah, of course I am. We've got some great guests coming up. We're, you know, going to talk about some good stuff, some tough stuff, but, you know, very happy. Very happy, as usual, mate. It's always good to get your energy in the room. Um, Ryan, you excited as well, mate? Are you, are you, are you really feeling the, the, the Series 3 vibes today? I'm pumped, mate. I'm pumped. What can I say? Yeah, up for it. Sun shining. Um, looking forward to, to releasing the episodes. So we're going to move on to the old pre-episode opening question. Disappointingly enough, this weekend was meant to be the start of Euro 2020 which I don't know if anybody's noticed, but there is a pandemic going on, which has meant the tournament has been moved to Euro 2021. Although I believe they're still going to call it Euro 2020, which is confusing, but it will yeah, be Yeah, well, they, they spent a lot of money on advertising, didn't they? So. Yeah, I suppose they've not got an enormous amount of money, UEFA. So <laughs> I, I reckon printing some new flyers would be a little bit of an expense. Um, but anyway, so this weekend was meant to be the start of Euro 2020. It isn't. It's next year. So what I've asked the lads, and I'm going to start with you, Ant, is to give me your favourite European Championships moment that is non-England related. Okay. So it's a bit of a weird one that it's my favourite. Um, but when Austria played in 2008, I think there was a big thunderstorm. And... Um, it was just really weird. I don't think I'd ever seen it on telly, really. The whole thing cut out. So I don't know how this is one of my favourite moments, but certainly one of my most memorable. I think it was like a Friday night, and it was a decent decent enough game. Um, and, yeah, it was just went, it was just chaos for about 20 minutes whilst we were like, is the telly working? No. Is it them? Is it us? Mm, I think there's a big thunderstorm going on, but you could just see it. And when the pitches came back, you could just see it overhead. All this lightning, it was... It was quite spectacular, really. Programs about weather get a life. <laughs> Ryan, I'm assuming yours isn't rain related. Um, 
what was your favourite non-England European Championships moment? Uh, um, I think just the whole run Iceland had, which I suppose is slightly England related because they knocked us out. But they, st they started doing that Viking chant, didn't they, with the clap? And it was just great to see um, a country of less than 400,000 get as far as they did in the tournament. And they just, they were just the epitome of, of, of team, weren't they? I mean, they had maybe Sigurdsson was probably the best and most well-known player, but you can't really say there was any real world-class players in the squad. And they just, I think they just got results against Portugal, results against England. And it was just great to see them. It was almost like purity of football back to what, what it used to be, where you've just seen these fans and players never be at a major tournament, but be there for the first time and, and get as far as they did. They didn't just make up the numbers. And that the whole Viking chant that they did seemed to epitomise how they played on the pitch. And I just thought that was brilliant. Yeah, that was excellent. My, I had two, actually, which were both in the same tournament. Oh, I had two then, so I want to say another one after yours. Well, go on, you say yours now. <laughs> I also, I also loved Northern Ireland's win against Ukraine. Oh, you prick! That's the one I had. Sorry, mate. Sorry, it was just class, wasn't it? It was a shame that Will Grigg didn't really get on in that tournament because that was all that was being sang throughout. But yeah, that was just brilliant when they won two 0 Well, I had so the first one I had was just Gabor Karai's general behaviour during that tournament. There was there was a moment where he did a no look pass, which was phenomenal because there was nobody anywhere near him, and he also did like a little roll through his legs, looking the other way, which was also tremendous. And he was obviously wearing pajama bottoms, which is fantastic <laughs> in a major tournament. Uh, but I also was the, 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 there's a video on YouTube um, before that uh, uh, Northern Ireland Ukraine game where they're all singing "Sweet Caroline" and it's absolutely fantastic. And you can just tell it's just a bunch of people just having a brilliant time. So that was it. That was the one I went for as well. So moving on, Dave Bolton. And we always go for a, a bit of a theme to try and frame the episode, which, you know, a little peek behind the curtain has taken us a little while to, to decide upon because there's so much that goes on in, in Dave's story. But do you want to give us what today's theme is, mate? Yeah, do you want the professional one or, or the amateur one? I probably, I'm, I'm, how are you splitting them? Right, so my, my professional theme would be refusing to accept a terminal diagnosis. But um, I, I was a big fan of um, just being a spirit of the Chumbawamba song, I Get Knocked Down, I Get Up Again. Yeah. Can you give us a little rendition of that for anyone who hasn't heard it? Uh, no, <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> Pathetic. Um, Ryan, it's a bit of an obvious question, but for the listeners, do you want to tell us why we wanted to speak to Dave Bolton? Yeah, of course. Um, I first came across Dave. I signed up for a calisthenics course 
um, just randomly. That was something I wanted to do. And he was actually uh, my coach on the, on the first day. So I sort of half heard his story um, just by being in the gym. And then I read up on him, I followed him on social media, and I just genuinely wanted to hear more about him, really, because I didn't really feel like asking him in person was appropriate. And it, it became apparent that he'd be the perfect guest for the show. Um, and he's a man who's gone through so much, practically from the brink and on more than one occasion, and is still here to tell his story. So from being in the armed forces, high-ranking police officer, elite sportsman, to nearly losing his leg and outliving a terminal illness, and he now runs something called DB Inspires. And without sounding cheesy, I think that's exactly what he does because he's one of the most inspiring, if not the most inspiring person I've ever come across in person. And it's an interview that will link, live long in the memory for me personally. So I'm just hopeful that anybody who's struggling sort of see a light at the end of the tunnel and realise the unachievable can be achieved when, when they hear Dave's story. Yeah, couldn't have put it better myself, mate, although I am disappointed that I'm not the most inspiring person that you've ever met in person. Top three. Um, yeah, I'll take it. Top three. Decent. So that's enough of our nonsense. Uh, we'll see you on the other side, but this is Dave Bolton's interview. Can you just give us an idea of why you agreed to, to come on the podcast today, please, Dave? Uh, yeah, well, I'm a big, big advocate, if anyone who follows me on LinkedIn uh, and on the social media platforms uh, for men speaking about their mental health. I think there's still a massive taboo or a stigma and a sign of weakness if men speak about their feelings or ask for help for their mental health. So I like to open myself up quite rawly and talk about my my extensive uh, journey through mental health, really, because um, it is okay not to be okay. And I think it's a message that needs to be put out there more, especially in the world of sport. Uh, yeah, I'm a child of two armed forces parents. So what was that upbringing like? Yeah, it was good. So I was actually born in uh, RF Wurzburg uh, in West Germany, as it was back then. Um, and, and that was in 1981. Um, so I lived uh, from the age of one to nine uh, in the forces. So I was a scaly brat. Um, I had a really, really, I loved my time uh, in Germany. Um, it was a, one of the best upbringings. We lived in a family called, so my dad was based in RAF Larbrook. Okay. Uh, and we lived off camp in the family quarters in a little place called Vitsa, which was only like a mile down the road. And it was just, I just had a great childhood. I absolutely loved growing up. At the age of seven, I kind of got picked out for having a potential to become an elite, elite sports athlete. Um, and kind of my journey uh, through sports kind of went started there. Um, I came back to uh, live in on the Wirral, uh, where's where my dad's from, because my dad was a, a techie in the RAF, and my mum was in um, uh, logistics. Uh, but back then, when she got pregnant with myself, she chose to uh, to, to leave the forces and worked in the Naffy Naffy Bar. Oh, okay, that's really interesting. Actually, it's a really really different upbringing from I think any of us that we've had. Um, so we skipped a few years down the line. Was that upbringing from from that early days and you know around the the bases and the barracks? Was that any influence on you joining the armed forces as well? Yeah, I think so because uh, obviously mum and dad were in, but also my granddad uh, was in the forces. He so he served in the Cypriot War. My great granddad was in World War Two. My great great granddad was in uh, was in uh, World War One, and obviously my dad served in the Falklands as well when he was in. So it was kind of a natural progression, I think, that I was always going to go into it. And the Falklands War would have been when you were quite young. 
Yeah, I was in Germany at the time. Yeah. What was that? What was that like? I don't know. I think I was very young, so I didn't. I don't think I understood the seriousness of what was going on. I just remember him going away and not being there for ages. Mm. And then him coming back, we had a party, and he brought back two, which I've still got to this day, a penguin. Obviously, with the Falklands as penguins, isn't it? Yeah. Beach. And he brought back a, a stuffed penguin. But I was I was that young. I don't think I understand the seriousness and the gravity of what was actually going on out there. Okay, so when you enter the the RAF, it was wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah so when you enter the RAF, did you feel prepared for that environment? Because it can be quite tough, can't it? Yeah, and especially because I was I was quite young. So I, uh, I left school at sixteen with decent uh, GCSEs, decent grades. But I was always going to go in, into the forces. So I, I was at sixth form in Pensby, and. For six months, I didn't really do much. I just kind of, because it was a it was a separate school, boys and girls. So I spent most of the time in the, the common room with the girls. Um, <laughs> so I started off by doing five A levels, uh, and within four months, I was down to one. They <laughs> <laughs> called me in and said, "What are you doing?" I said, oh, "I'll just leave." So I just got a job in um, all sports. A lot of people won't remember that, but in just oh, sport, I remember all sports. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I loved it. So sixteen to it, and on my eighteenth birthday, uh, I went. Uh, Jumped on the train from uh, Lime Street and went down to uh, Wendover, uh, RAF Holton, where I started basic training. Um, to answer your question, did I feel prepared? Probably not. No. 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 Well, so when you get there, you're young, you're in this environment, it's quite tough. I mean, looking on the outside in, I wouldn't have been. I couldn't handle it. All the ironing, all the stress, oh, you know. Yeah. I wouldn't be able to handle it. What did it teach you straight away when you got in there? Um, respect. 100%. <laughs> Respect and discipline um, are the big ones. It's the, for me, in the basic training, they're trying to weed out those who haven't got it. Um, so for your first three weeks, you're not sleeping at all. Um, yeah. You get two hours, two hours sleep. So you're, uh, you're up sewing, sewing every a name badge into every piece of kit you have, literally everything. Ironing, pulling your boots. You get to sleep at four o'clock, and then at six you have to be up for inspection. Uh, not only was it your bed, and you had to make a bed pack with all your sheets, and it was even if you were immaculately clean, he would pull you something up, and you would learn quickly that whatever they say is right. Yeah, absolutely, and that can be quite tough for, yeah. particularly for a teenager. You know, you always want to be right, don't you? Well, I me, mean, I was quite cocky back then, and quite a, a, a bit of a, a mouthy one. So uh, I learned, I learned quickly. <laughs> I, I learned when um, I knew for a fact I'd cleaned the bed space immaculately. There was nothing there. And uh, the corporal comes in on staff and he uh, puts it on his pocket, goes around, pulls out some fluff. And he says, why is that there? I said, I, I cleaned it. Am I a liar? And that was it. Man. You learn the answer. <laughs> have you ever seen a bad pet? We were on the third floor. And he said, have you ever seen a, bad, a bed pack fly? I said, no staff. He opened the window and threw all my kit out the window. <laughs> so that kind of, that, that's got to be tough. I mean, yeah. I don't think I'd be able to handle that right now. Yeah. When you're in that environment, are you being kind of moulded into what they want or do you think yeah. they're adapting to your personality as well? No, no. I think what they do is they, they break you down to build you up. Okay. Uh, and we started off on a flight with about 52 on passing out. There was only 20 of us. So. Wow. Yeah. That's quite a, that's quite a big chunk who haven't, yeah, uh, who haven't yeah. made the grade. Yeah. So mentality is a massive thing in, in any armed forces. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Uh, did you have to adapt to that? To, yeah, I think I think I think what I did is I had to grow up. Okay. More than more than anything, um, and 
yeah, as I said, you learn the hard way, and I did have to learn the hard way. But what usually happens is I learn by mistakes, and I learn from those mistakes, and I see it as a positive, and that's kind of how I then ended up going through. Like uh, within the first three weeks, you get a thing called uh, toss, so ch- training occurrence failures or something. You get three, you get back flighted. Um, within my first week, I had three. Oh God. So, um, no, sorry if you get four. So I had three, but two were nothing to do with me. It was like group ones. The whole flight got done and one was mine. Um, so then I just thought, right, you're going to have to knuckle down here because I didn't want to get back flighted. Um, and I came away with it being the best recruit uh, on Pass Out Parade. That must have made you feel really proud and obviously you yeah. to your mum and dad as well. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't tell them neither on Pass Out Parade. My auntie uh, Sharon came and, and my, my sister Viv. And I hadn't told them. So when you're on the final press out parade and you've done your marching and your drills with your weapon, you then read out uh, who comes forward. So then I got called out, so it was good. And obviously everyone who'd been out before for like best effort and determination, best marksman, were all clapping. And obviously my lot being from up here, start cheering and shouting, which was uh, highly embarrassing, should we say. <laughs> but, yeah, proud moment all the same. Yeah, I can imagine so. And and obviously this is uh, like a podcast linked to football as well. And I know you mentioned that you play a lot of, you've done a lot of sports, you love yeah. sports. Um, do you think there's any kind of comparisons with like the sort of regimented process of the armed forces and professional sports as well? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, as I said before, you, you get that respect. Well, not only that, it's, you've got to have communication skills in the armed forces and you've, you've got to learn to, if your commanding officer or whoever your senior is gives you gives you an order, you've got to react to it straight away. So you're working on communication skills. You're developing your own leadership skills, which kind of then go hand in hand with sport, especially in the team, with a team mindset, because you kind of win together, you lose together, and you train together. And it's it's very, very, uh, very similarly linked, really, within sport. And you mentioned, you do talks about decisions as well, don't you? You give a, a few talks yeah. on, on decision-making. Yeah, That's mentally. really interesting to me, actually, yeah. um, because you've got these, you know, decisions can seem really easy, but yeah. when they're kind of pressurised environments, yeah. it never really comes across that well, does it? You know, it's really tough to make decisions. Yeah, under pressure. So what's your experience or what's your advice around decisions? Um, really, we're talking through sport, it kind of improves your, your uh, concentration. It kind of keeps you mentally sharp. But that improves your critical thinking, if you know what I mean, with that decision under pressure. And it's about learning to relax in those decisions. I've always thrived. When everything's been going off around me, I'm at my best. That's when I'm the most calmest. Um, I don't know whether that... I certainly wasn't born with that. It's something that you develop over time. Certainly the armed forces have helped that, my training and my upbringing as well, to, to a point. Is your upbringing tough or...? Um, there's two ways you can look at it. It could be a negative or it could be a positive. I took it as a positive. Um, obviously, as I said before, from the age of seven, um, I was running for the Great Britain, uh, the Great British Armed Forces School. I ended up being uh, captain. So I was a sprinter, 100, 204 by 100 uh, metres. In the ages of seven to nine, I was undefeated. When I came back to uh, England, I ran for Wirral Athletics. Again, we've never beaten. I could run a, a bend like no one else. We could be in like near last position. I'd get the baton and I'd put us into second. We always had a good, uh, a good uh, final uh, anchor man. Yeah. Um, obviously, I played football, um, county level, hockey county level, rugby county level. I even played volleyball. When I was saying about the upbringing, 
for me, nothing was ever good enough. When I'd be winning races, there was always a, my granddad or my dad who'd say, yeah, but you locked over your shoulders, so you could have sh you shaved milliseconds over, but score a couple of tries, it'd be, but you missed the tackle. So it wasn't, it's, it was that constant, right, I need to do better, I need to do better, which kind of then, I think, gave me the mindset that I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. So I see that as a positive, whereas others may see it as a bit of a negative. After you come out of the armed forces, uh, sorry, the RAF, yeah, yeah. you go into the Merseyside Police? That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so uh, uh, yeah, I, I did three years in the RAF, and I only ever meant to do that anyway as a, as a stopgap. I wanted to do it, obviously a bit of a family legacy, but I, for some reason I always wanted to go into, go into the police anyway, and at my age, uh, they, they weren't taking on people at 18. And really, when I came out at just before I was 21, because I have a 21st birthday in training, um, they weren't taking on people people that, but one of the questions that they say to you in an interview is, um, they usually get told, go away and get some life experience. So when they were talking about, when have you faced conflict? Well, I served out in Air Ops Iraq, so that was it. So they couldn't really turn around to me and say, go away and get some life experience when I probably had more than them. I was reading before you became one of the first officers to still in their two-year probation period to be given a driving course and transferred yeah, yeah. to a level one response yeah. unit. Yeah, that's right, yeah. After 18 that must be amazing. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, because you're on basically back then. It's changed, all changed now. When you join up, you, you you do you do two years, and you're basically on foot. So I was on foot in the north end of Birkenhead. I don't know if many <laughs> people know of it, but back then, so we're talking uh, early 2000s. I could walk out the station and arrest someone straight away. It was just a hive of um, criminality, shall we say? September uh, 2004. Yeah, that's right. And you have an accident where uh, I think you could put it in better words than I can. Yeah, so it was like uh, September, I think September the, the 8th, not that I remember that well. Uh, <laughs> doing really well within the police. I'm on, as I said, a level one uh, response team. So we do all the 999 calls, get all the flashy stuff, drive around with the fast cars. It, it's great. Just moved into uh, my first property with my girlfriend, who's now my wife, because we met in school in Pensby yeah. at 16. And we just found out pregnant with our first child a week earlier. So uh, conditions are amazing, nice day, the day off. So I cut a very, very long story short. I phoned up my partner, who I was good mates with at the time uh, in, in, in the job. And we went out to Wales for, for a ride, a motorbike. So I rode a GSXR 600 sports bike. Um, lent into a corner on the horseshoe pass. Come off the power as we come into it. Came on the power. I don't know if people know about riding bikes, but to ride the corner, you come on the power so it hugs it. As I've been going around the corner, um, there was diesel and gravel all over the road. One thing you should never do on a bike is brake on a corner. But my, um, when it hit that gravel and um, oil, it kind of gave a tank wobble. So it wobbled. And my autonomous natural reaction was to jab the brake. That sat the bike upright and took me across to the side of the road, which usually wouldn't be too bad. But unfortunately for me, about eight foot away was an 18-ton articulated lorry. Um, when they say time stands still, trust me, it does. I had like a full-blown conversation with myself on what to do. It felt about 10 minutes long, which happened in milliseconds. The upshot from the chat was to, uh, in my head, was to jump from the bike. It was another option. So I shifted all my weight onto the left-hand side on the peg and jumped. Uh, the bike obviously got smashed up on the front. I landed on my back, sliding across onto the left-hand side of the road, which was the right where I should be. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, how you look at it, I'm going to say fortunately, um, I went under the back cab. Of the um, of the the lorry and the front two wheels of the Arctic. The reason why I'm saying fortunately because it went over my legs. 
if I'd been a split second later, it would have gone in my stomach and we wouldn't be having this conversation here now. During those those moments, particularly after it, I think you were in a coma for yeah, that's right. like 12 days? Um, seven. Seven, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, what was that? What was that like? I, I've heard people talk about being in comas and they kind of go through amazing experiences whilst in them. Did you have anything similar? Yeah, yes. Yeah, I just want to touch on um, just when I was on, just links in. I don't even know where it came from. When I was lying there underneath the lorry half on the side of the road, I knew it was bad because my leg had snapped up above my head and there was just blood coming out everywhere and I did have leathers on. And I only crossed at 23 miles an hour. Um, but even at that time, I don't know where I got it from, whether it was the military or not. I knew I had to stay calm because if I'd have panicked, my heart rate would have raised and I would have bled out quicker. And I had to be airlifted to Glen Cluid. I mean, um, I was later told a lot longer on, I was 30 seconds away from bleeding out. At one point, they were putting blood in and it was spraying out because I completely severed my uh, femoral artery. And if, I don't know if you've seen, I completely degloved my left leg of skin, um, three quarters of my calf removed, completely shattered my right leg, broke my patella into... Uh, six places so um, yeah tough time going on to the coma um, I said I slipped into that when I was in it's an induced coma uh, I was put into it in the, in the back of the air, air ambulance um, he tried to bring me around on day six but apparently I was in two pit I have no recollection and then he brought me around on day eight say I'm not that magical experience I'm, I've wrote stuff about it I always remember pa feeling panicked like something horrific had happened when I was out. I had this feeling and I just had this, it was weird really. I just remember being stood, stood in the field and everything was white, but not white as in like clouds that I was in heaven. It was like white snow, white daisies, and it was like this white fog. And I just remember feeling really scared. And then suddenly my granddad was sat on this wooden fence next to me and my granddad passed away when I was in uh, police training in 2001. And he just said, don't worry. You're going to be okay. And I just remember, remember feeling a sense of calm. And then I got that I got brought around. Uh, I've got an auntie Joanne, and, and she's great. She's my godmother, but she's a lot. And I always remember being there, thinking, "Just get off me! Just get off me!" <laughs> I could just remember this thing. I'll mean to get off me. And went a lot later on when I was, which I'll go into because it, it was a lot longer before I even knew what was going on. I remember saying, "Was Joanne?" And they said, "Yeah." I said, "Was she lying on me?" They said, "Yeah." <laughs> <laughs> even that, but yeah. Wow. When you come out of the coma, it's not like on the movies where you, you sit up and they're talking. Mm. Um, I just remember being held down to the bed. Yeah, um, it's quite stressful, isn't it? It's quite a yeah. trauma. Because I came around and what, the reason why they're holding you down is because, obviously, I was on life support machine, so I had uh, I was intubated, so the tube goes through into my lungs. But your first natural reaction when you come around is to rip that thing, that, that object that you think's stopping your breathing when actually it's keeping you alive. Now, if you were to do that, you, you'd, you'd rip all your lungs. So I was held down, I slowly pulled out. And then all I can all remember is really them saying, breathe, just breathe, Dave. And I couldn't because the machine had been doing it. Breathing's easy, isn't it? We don't even think about it. So it, took, it felt like an eternity. Eventually I took this big breath of air and then I don't really remember much else from then for about, I didn't even know I was in hospital for three weeks. Apparently I was being sick a lot. Um, and unfortunately I developed a morphine psychosis um, whilst I was uh, in Western Hospital. Now you shouldn't be able to get morphine psychosis because you have a thing called a PCA, a patient controlled, and, and I can never say that word, anagelesia. So it was basically for, for a morphine and it locks out after three. What was happening was I got, as I was getting transferred, 
I'd hit it three times past that. When I was asleep, I'd come round and I'd, I'd be having a dream where I thought I was being operated on. So I'd see my, my legs getting, you know, sore into, so I'd panic and hit, I was hitting it in my sleep. Happened all night and it kind of morphed into, not morphed, morphine psychosis, um, which is horrific. It's as real as what you're seeing around you now. Um, I had, when I first got transferred to Western Hospital, which is a great place in Liverpool, absolutely superb, two nurses were stood at the end of my bed on the first day and they were probably just discussing the ward rounds. Um, I'd physically see them say, he shouldn't even be in this in this hospital. He did this to himself on a motorbike. He shouldn't even be at, how do we get rid of him? Then the other one would say, let's poison his food. So I didn't eat at all. I would, wow. dream, I would dream myself completely. Wow. <laughs> Um, just taking it back by that. That's, that's... Yeah. Uh, there were, were funnier hallucinations. Uh, there was a guy in the bed opposite me, and he, uh, um, his wife was there, and they had a pizza delivered, and he shouted over to me. Uh, I said to him, Oh, that smells great, that. What is it? He said, Oh, it's a pineapple and ham. And I said, Oh, Hawaiian. He said, Yeah. I said, Oh, people don't like pineapple on pizza. I don't mind it. And he said, Do you want some? I said, Yeah, uh, no, I'm all right. I, I'm, I'm not that hungry. It was just him on his own. His wife wasn't there. There was no one there. And apparently he was looking at me going, what are you talking about, mate? <laughs> um, there was loads of people. I didn't even know I was in hospital. I didn't know I'd been in an accident. I had no clue. And that kind of the final straw with that came when um, my wife, my girlfriend, said she was, I was getting mixed up. I'll just call her my wife for everything. My wife turned up with my mum. And I said, why are you visiting me every day? I said, what do you mean? I said, it must cost you a fortune. He said, we only go through the tunnel. I said, there isn't a tunnel to Canada. I was rocking him a bit. I thought I was in a mental institute in Canada. That is, I mean, that's unbelievable, really. I, mean, I think, yeah, that must be quite a trauma. So when you come back round from from that coma and, you know, the weeks afterwards, how are you feeling at that point? You've got, a, obviously, a, a really bad leg injury. Yeah. Really, well, you know, significant traumas to yourself. Yeah, well, at that point when I was said I'm in Canada, obviously concerns were raised for my mental health and they brought the doctor who was looking after me. Um, and I had this moment of clarity and I begged him to take me off everything. And he said, we can't because you've been in too much pain. I just said, I, I don't care. I'd rather be in pain and know what's going on. I'm stuck in this void of reality. I don't know what's real and don't know what's what. So he took me off it as he did. And it was two days. And I just woke up in the morning, looked around, realised in hospital, and then looked at my leg. And we were under a sheet, but I had six metal external pins in my left leg because because I degloved, as I said before, my leg. and my leg was only being held on by a few veins and, and strands of uh, muscle fibers so that would just flop round. so they had to drill these pins in to keep it straight because the reason why i was in in uh western hospital was for skin grafting because hmm. that's where they specialize in so i had to have several operations on that so i look down and obviously i've got no skin it's it's bandaged but there's blood soaked all over my uh, um, over my sheet i look over to my right and it's in a cast my right leg's in a cast all the way up to my hip and i'd gone from about 13 stone down to seven, half my body weight. So it was all skin and bones, and it was just like, uh, what the hell's happened? Because I still didn't quite switch on to what it was. I just burst out into tears, begged, I need to speak to, to, to my, my girlfriend, my wife, um, but I couldn't even remember her phone number. So my brain was still a bit pickled, should we say. Um, <laughs> well, apart, and slowly it started dripping in what had been going on, and like my world just fell apart. Because I did, another thing is, I'd just been selected um, for trials to go to Germany for the World Championships in kickboxing um, at the end of the year. So obviously that never happened. So there was that. And then there was also the fact that I was due to have a baby as well. 
Yeah, I, I was, yeah and as I was saying, I was young. I was 23, 24. Back then, sport had been my whole entire life. That's what, mm. I, loved, what I was passionate about. And there was also that side of it. Because the doctors were saying to me, um, I'll never be able to walk again properly. Uh, I'll always have an aid. I paid to see a top uh, private specialist in Wigan. He was the top orthopedic surgeon in the country. And he basically said, you've got no option. So all I could do, I was given up on by physios, doctors. I could only get like 20 degree movement, 30 degree flexion in my, in my left leg. So he's up, the option says you've got two options. is to amputate your leg below the, uh, the left knee to give you the best chance of prosthetics. Or I, I don't understand why you do this, but have a steel rod fused to it so it locks it out straight. Obviously, I refused, came out, burst out crying. I'm a young lad. I basically thought, right, I'll do it myself. Uh, and spent, I was back in work after eight months, but only on like light duties. It's kind of my mindset. And then I just spent 18 months in absolute brutal, put myself through brutal physio. So I'd be a normal dining chair. I'd be sat on the, uh, sat there on the floor with it, with my leg over the, 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 uh, the bottom part, hanging as much weight as I can, just cranking that knee. Um, I'd be in absolute agony. Tears be coming down when I took the weight off. I couldn't, I couldn't stretch it because it had stuck into place. Um, I'd have belts and doors. I'd be like slamming it to try and get a bit more crank. It just continued. Loads of different other methods I was using and trying. And the upshot was 18 months later, I got to 95 degrees flexion. I physically can't get any, any more from that. Um, but I can ride. I can run. Um, I can do all the stuff I love, snowboarding. I can play rugby. Um, the only time you can kind of notice there's something wrong is if I'm at full sprint because I don't have that full mechanic of it going back. Mm. You never really know about it. I'm lucky still have it. So when you're going through that 18 months, which sounds absolutely grueling, mm. are you relying on that that previous training of armed forces training? Are you relying on that? Are you relying on that mentality to get you through that? A part of it, yeah, definitely. It's that kind of never say die, never give up. You know, we're not we're not here to quit. But it was also in the back of my mind was that because we knew we were having a boy in the end. And it was that, I want to be able to run, even if it was a girl, it'd be the same. Uh, I wanted to play football. I wanted to, you know, I just wanted to live an active life with him. So I didn't want to see him. I didn't want him to see him grow up, seeing me as a bit of a, I know it's a stupid term, but at that time, as a cripple, I felt that there would be a failure. So that was my driving force as well, was, was that. And it was also what I put my family through, my wife and everyone else. So um, that was just always in, in front of my mind that, I'm not going to quit, and I, somehow I'll do it, and I did. And during that time, when you when you're doing that rehab, you must have come up against a lot of brick walls. Yeah. How are you getting? How are you getting through them during that time? Just uh, learning from it, really. Um, you know, I'm a, I believe I'm a very positive person, um, but you do have setbacks, and, and sometimes it does knock you back down to square one. I, at one point, I just remember thinking, I feel like I'm taking, excuse the pun, like like one step forward and two steps back, but you've just got to keep moving forward. You know, nothing's given to you easy. Uh, you've just got to push on and work hard. And I think that's an, an, another thing with the forces. Um, you learn that nothing's for free, really. You've got to work for it. And I think that's kind of the mentality that I took through the rehab. Absolutely. And you get through that rehab, you get to 95%. What was that feeling like when you got to that moment? Yeah, awesome, really. It was a gradual thing, but it, it was. And I think the big thing for me was I've been told I'd never, never, never walk properly again to get your leg amputated. It was my first day back on full patrol, back on my old unit on A Block in Birkenhead. Um, it was just brilliant, really. And I can see the smile on your face now when you're thinking about it. So it must yeah. have been 
Yeah, no, yeah, bring him back. Bring him back to start getting back because a lot of people thought I'd never get back there. And at one point, I did doubt myself as well. And I was like, well, what do I, what, what do, I do? Because I'm going to have to retire. But um, I had a really good boss, Cliff Barr, who basically, for 14 years of my career, everywhere I went, he followed. And it wasn't just because of me, but it's just the way it was. And he, he was brilliant. And he even put himself out there. Because um, at one point, I think the police were looking at pensioning me off. But he, he stood up for me, went to bat for me, he came on. Personally, personal PSP, so it's personal safety protection courses, so it's your handcuffing. You always get the odd idiots who like to go hard on you. So he'd come on it to partner me. So he'd be going, oh, yeah, that really hurts, Dave. You know, and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. On the right, right, I got back trained on PSU, so right training. And he came with me on that as well. So he was influential in getting me back uh, to where I was. And then my career just took off from there. How did you get over the, the emotional scarring that must happen with an injury like that? And I think I think it's a lot different because I was young. I didn't really know know much much different, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It's it was hard while I was going through it, but I don't think it scarred me. It's not as though I have like PTSD or and I could ride a motorbike again now if I wanted to, but I choose not to because of what I put my family through, what I put my wife through, what I, you know that uncertainty. And because it wasn't my fault, really, it could happen again. I yeah. I didn't. I, if I'm gonna be honest, I don't really have any like I didn't have any mental real trauma during it definitely, but afterwards it it doesn't it's never bothered me. And people often say, "Do you, do you regret going out that day?" And I was I'd be like, "No," because I'm a massive believer in faith. Um, actually, the person in the vehicle behind me when I was lying there bleeding out was an off-duty paramedic who obviously saved my life. I didn't know, but she obviously stemmed the femoral artery. Um, and I say, wow. "Well, how do, how do I know that?" A week later, I wouldn't have been killed. And then I always, what I usually go moving forward, I'd be saying, how, how do I know that wasn't building up that mental resilience, that moral strength, that whatever you want to call it, uh, fortitude to fight the ultimate fight? And that wasn't coming back from that motorbike accident to go on to win a uh, world kickboxing title. It's to ultimately beat terminal cancer and outlive it. So you almost let it be part of your story rather than let it yeah, define yeah. you out yeah, yeah, there. Doesn't define me, so... And do you, would you put down some of that mental fortitude to your time in the armed forces, or do you think it's something you've always had within you? I think I've had, I've always had it in me, but I think it was enhanced by by the by the by, the, by being in the forces, especially when you're out in doing a tour of Iraq and in Kuwait and the, and the surrounding areas. You, you've got to be mentally resilient. You have to be. There's no other option. I think that kind of galvanised it. Should we say if that's the right word? Um, yes, if, so you've yeah, almost yeah. nurtured that natural ability and natural strength. Yeah. It, honed, it honed it, it honed it. Yeah, that's the one, yeah. Um, so, obviously, you had the the disappointment of missing out of going to Germany, but you do eventually get to a position where you're strong enough to, to go to Italy and you win. I mean, firstly, can you just talk us to the reaction of your coaches and your teammates when you finally make it back into the gym and then to go on and win? What was that like? Yeah, well, I started back by playing five-a-side with the lads just from work, just testing out because no one's going to go stupid on me because I played, I played Sunday League Sunday league and Saturday League football growing up um, and then went on to be playing in Sunday League football and then started back at rugby. But what I always loved was combat sports. So I went back and started teaching the kids at the, at the gym and the instructors wanted me back in anyway. Uh, very positive and, and I think it was a good story for them <laughs> more than anything. <laughs> but um, what I found was that was still quite good and by changing the way I thought and fought I was quite handy 
So I won a load of local fights, and then the first t- title back was the Welsh Open Series, obviously in Wales. Uh, I then went on, went on to win the English and British title, um, and then I got the call to say someone had come and watched us at one of my fights and said, we'd like you to come down to Nottingham and trial out to potentially go to the World Championships in Italy, which was in 2009, in November. So for me, it was like putting the world back to right. You know, in 2004, I was robbed yeah. of it. And now, and this is 2008, I had the chance. So I spent six months, absolutely brutal training, sacrificing body, social life, family time. But it's what you needed to do. I wasn't going over there to be part of the, the numbers. And luckily, um, I was selected. Uh, flew out at the beginning of November 2009 and had 10 fights in four days. And then on the Sunday, I was fighting the Italian lad in Italy with a fractured wrist and three broken toes. Um, and I thought I had to knock him out because he should have been fighting the uh, uh, a French guy in the final. Uh, I'm glad I wasn't, to be honest. But uh, he was robbed. The French guy was robbed because they were all Italian judges. So I thought I had to knock him out. But I convincingly beat him up that much that I was crowned light heavyweight world champion. Um, wow. It's just amazing. Tears flowing. Coaches jumping all over as all my teammates. So uh, it's an amazing, amazing uh, experience. And, and how did the, the leg and the knee hold up? throughout that tournament okay yeah yeah solid i've got no actual ligaments or tendons in my left leg it's held together with scar tissue that's what that was stopping that flexion because it had been kept straight for so long with those external pins scar tissue had gone in it and it's fused so it's like stretching so it's actually probably more solid than bad ligaments and tendons and people always think left legs the bad one it's probably my right because it's compensated for so long (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that's the one that's kind of but no but it was yeah I was always good with, with with my hands so I relied more on my hands but I had a really good right right leg so so yeah so do, 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 do you seem to always always have a target Dave and something you're always trying to achieve or something to aim for and do you think that that helps you in your journey having something you're striving for and a, almost a purpose yeah no definitely I think for me I've I like to have motivation. It's what fires me up, and having goals or something in sight is gonna is gonna fire me and make me want to excel even more. And I almost get the impression that you work harder when you're told you can't do something. Oh yeah, definitely. Tell me, I'm not going to do anything. Yeah, I can't do something. I'll prove you wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go out my way to make sure it happens. <laughs> <laughs> and. Um... I mean, a lot of the people we, we've spoken to on the, the show, we've looked at things like personal resilience and we're trying to, to use this podcast um, as a platform for people to come on and just help others really. Somebody can listen to the story and take something from it. And the word personal, well, the term personal resilience keeps coming up. And have you developed any strategies yourself throughout the years and what you've dealt with, Dave, that you think is useful for for others? Yeah, I think with like personal resilience, mental resilience, that whole kind of um, topic, a good one that I used through my, my, my or certainly my sport, sporting days, and even going through the uh, my, my fight with cancer, visualization. Because a, a negative, a single negative negative thought can be so destructive to both the subconscious and the conscious part of the mind. Um, so I use visualization. So. And a lot of other, uh, like Tiger Woods, he when I do a talk, I show a clip about visualization. And he talks about how he employed a visualization coach to develop the creativity in his mind to see the shots, to be to be the clubs. We say for me, 
it would be I would visualize my uh, ring walk. I'd visualize, I'd get into the ring because you're always allowed in. And I'd, I'd visualize my first three shots. I'd move around. I'd then visualize how I'd celebrate when I won, which, which corner I was going to go to. I'd just make it so, so real in my mind that it, it was always going to happen. And, and that played a massive part, I think, in winning. So visualization's key. And even going through my cancer stage, especially when I didn't have long, or I, did, I shouldn't have had long to live, when I had a negative thought about, oh, you know, I'm going to die, I'd straight away, I'd switch on and start thinking about, right, visualise walking my daughter down the aisle. So I'd visualise everything about that. I even know what speech I'm going to say at a wedding. I've got that so ingrained in me. Um, I'd visualise my doctor and my consultant giving me good results, how I was going to celebrate, who I was going to tell. So I've always got that visualisation coping mechanism. So to put it into layman's terms, or if you're dealing with a problem, don't visualise the negativity of it. Visualize a more successful, more positive outcome. So that's one. I think having a positive and negative attitude is a huge one as well. So it's taking, looking for the positives when everything looks dark and the negative. Yeah, I think that's brilliant, Dave, because although it's not easy and some people find it easier than others, it is something anybody can do. And I suppose over time it just comes with, with practice. We, yeah. we had a guy on the show called uh, Kevin Cowley. He's actually the first episode we released and he was a, a survivor of Hillsborough. And he sort of dealt with demons for 31 years to the point where he, he got married and had kids. And he, he is, when he married his wife, she didn't even know he was at Hillsborough. Like, he just couldn't come to terms with it, deal with it, speak about it. And in recent years, he's done a bit of CBT. And he's really just tackled it head on. And he's in a better place now than he's ever been in since being a 17-year-old boy and fighting for his life amongst uh, a crowd in a horrible tragedy. And... Um, we found that he sort of said similar things to you when you sort of face it and you, you twist on its head and stop going down a negative route of it's my fault or I've done this wrong or this will never be the same. Flip your thinking and it's such a powerful tool, your own brain, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. It's, yeah, it's, just, it's just changing that inner voice in your head, that, that negative voice that's where, you know, I, I can't do this. Just You need to change that. It takes practice, don't get me wrong, but the more you do it, the more it becomes a natural thing. So I can't do it. It's like, I'm not good at it at the moment, but I'm going to overcome that. And it's just changed the word because we all have that inner voice in us where we sat there and go, oh, I can't do that. It's just switching that or, you know, I'm no good. Well, I can get better at this. It's just changing the terms you use in your head, I think. And you can develop that positivity and that mental resilience. I do a whole entire talk on it as well because there's loads of different ways we can come at it and build it. Because it's like a muscle. You apply stimulus to the muscle, it grows. The brain's exactly the same thing. But it has to be um, developed from different components. So when you're lying in hospital bed, whether it's been with uh, your cancer, which we'll come on to, or your, your, your injury uh, that we've discussed, what type of coping mechanisms did you have in place then? Was it just the sort of telling yourself everything's going to be okay and having that positive outlook, or was there anything else that you used as well? Yeah, really, it was basically, I feel lucky, I'm unlucky, but lucky, because... I had, I've got a huge support network with me. I've got a, a family who were there through thick and thin. My wife, I say, it's been my, it's our accident, it's our cancer, it's our journey. Because she's probably been there. I don't even know why she's still with me, actually, while we're talking about that. Oh, she is. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's it's that positivity. And it's also to allow yourself, uh, it's a good one for other people out there who are probably potentially suffering. Um, it's allow yourself days where you're down. Um, I had it where I just think, people say, oh, you're so positive, but every so often, especially in those darker days when I was in hospital, I just have a day where I think, I can't be asked. I don't even want to try, and I don't. But as long as you draw a line in the sand at the end of that day and say tomorrow's going to be a better day, 
and that's fine. I wanted to touch on your cancer diagnosis. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had cancer myself a few years ago, so I've got my own insight into my experience. Um, but what I wanted to ask you, with the amount of significant traumas that you experienced, did you get to the point when you got your cancer diagnosis where you just thought, come on, someone's having a laugh now, what's going on? Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> just like, why? I mean, I got quite angry at the, uh, at the beginning. Because um, obviously in the police, you see all, all these drug users, you see these horrible, violent criminals, and nothing ever, you think, what, why me? But cancer isn't, doesn't discriminate. It doesn't, it doesn't care whether you, what race you are, what, what, you know, how affluent you are. It's just, just a cruel, unforgiving disease. And how my life changed overnight. There was no lead up to it. There was no warning signs. It was a, so I grieved a bit um, for the person who I used to be. Are you able to look back now and remember what actually went through your mind what words were said what could you put that situation into any kind of sentence yeah I, I can't remember them just saying after they said that unfortunately you've got and then kind of like everything else like phased out what was said so I just and you're people you know you think you just break down but I just sat there just facing them going it's not in my head and then they were like looking at me to say, do you understand how serious this is? And I was just like nodding, just going, yeah, yeah, fine. And it was only then when I looked at my wife and could see her tears, that then eventually this just wave of emotion, I just started absolutely burst into tears. Yeah. What was worse though, was the fact that it was a bank holiday. So they said they'd, they're not a specialist hospital, but we've confirmed with Walton Neurology, uh, not, Neurogy, <laughs> Walton Neurology Center. Uh, that it's a, it's a tumour, but I did I couldn't have my meeting till the Tuesday. They didn't want to keep me in hospital, obviously, because I could manage it at home. So I was put on like anti-seizure tablets and steroids to stop the swelling. What made it worse was about six months earlier, I was in charge of the um, of a serial, so a riot team for kicks off. I was going in as a sergeant. Now I'm a red, as I've said before, but one of the lads uh, was was a blue. So we were having a lot of banter between each other. Two weeks later, he'd suffered a stroke. He had a brain tumour and he died three months later. So all I had in my head for those four days was I'm going to die in three months. It was the worst four days of my life. If you were to not rank them, but is the one in your mind that kind of really gave you a gut punch more than the other? Um, yeah, I think it would be my second diagnosis of brain tumour. So I was... Um, so basically, I was to cut a very long story short on this one. From that moment from Walton, I was yeah, I was in surgery six weeks later. Where six weeks of my life, I go into it a lot when I'm talking about my bed being in prison. But um, surgery went really well. I was up talking after three hours, and I was released within three days. Uh, I'd already retired from the police. Um, I was given five years to live. Um, so I thought I want to, you know, I want to crack on with my life. And I was already a strength and conditioning. I had my strength and conditioning qualifications. So I started work as a strength and conditioning coach, working with some teams, you know, I've worked with UFC stars. Um, life was going great. Um, I came back from mate stag do on the Sunday and had a routine scan, as I did every four months. Um, and at that scan, it, it, it spanned the, uh, the screen round, said, unfortunately, we found a mass. That was only a small black mass, whereas the first one was an astrocytoma, which was the size of a tennis ball. So it didn't look as bad, but I knew because it was black, it was a high grade. So I said straight away, that's a glioblastoma. 
Uh, I'm not having chemo. I'm not having radio. You can do one burst into tears. Uh, but it was that serious. I was in for surgery that weekend. Surgery didn't go to plan. Um, from scan to surgery for two weeks, it had doubled in size. That's how aggressive it was. Um, I spent a couple of days in HDU and then 14 days in hospital uh, where my neurology nurse, uh, oncology neurologist, <laughs> so many ologists, um, basically who I had a really good relationship with, came in <clears throat> and she said, um, I've got your results for your histology, so it's where they tell you what it is. And I like to know everything. So she knew I was going to ask for my life prognosis. Went into the family room and she got a bit choked up. So I just put my hand on her and said, it's a glioblastoma. Uh, I've got 12 hours to live. She said, yeah, it is a glioblastoma, but you've got more than that. So a glioblastoma is the world's deadliest tumour. It's the biggest killer in the 40s. And it's known as the terminator in the medical world because it's relentless and it always comes back. So if you imagine our arm and Arnie saying, I'll be back. That's what it is. Um, I asked, she said, do you want to know your life prognosis? And I said, is it the usual? And it was no. Um, so basically it was three months without treatment. So without radio or chemo, the gold standard, should we say, or it was six to eight with. So I had this decision, do I want to go through six to eight months of brutal just to die or do I want to spend a, a, a month living my best life? Um, so I went home away from that. And that's when I've sank into the most darkest depression you can ever imagine. It's hard to get across to someone how bad it was. Um, if you ever see those time-lapse films where everything's going off around, that was me. I was that thing on just sat there still while everything was going around me. And I'd lay on the couch. I kind of accepted I was going to die. It didn't bother me. And I was waiting for it to happen. I'd kind of already had the conversation with yourself that that was it. Yeah. Um, there was no other prognosis. That was your life. Game yeah. over. Yeah. Did you feel... Um, I mean, it's really difficult to put it yeah. into words, I would imagine. It is, yeah. But... I'm like empty and I've just given up on like it's like unless you've been there it's hard to get across that feeling so i say it's so hard to get about how dark my world was at that point yeah as many words that can and that's why i use that time lapse thing if you imagine this one stationary thing that's not moving life was just going around me like i had kids and i'd said like i was going to live my best life and i wasn't and the only thing that could drag me out of it was fitness and sport my wife said to me we're going for a run and I said, I don't want to go for a run. She says, you are. I said, I'm not. I said, what is the point in getting fit and healthy? I'm going to die. I don't care. What is the point? And obviously, women are always right, aren't they? So I got dragged out on a, um, on this run, and it was the worst run I've ever done. I mean, I retched. I was, I had stitch. I had to walk so many times. Um, yeah, it was horrendous. But that night, I slept just that little bit better. I felt that little bit better. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, and basically that run probably changed my whole entire mindset and is the reason why I'm still here. I was sat on the couch downstairs at three in the morning, pitch black crying, and I thought, right, there's two options. You said you're going to go home, live this month, if it, if it is going to be a month, the best you can. All you've done is sat here, eat rubbish. It's the only time I've ever been really, really uh, overweight. Drink, eat rubbish, and basically waste it. Now, and I still didn't think I was going to live at this point. Right, the options are you go through chemotherapy and radiotherapy, which is brutal. Six months is obviously the average. Well, I'm not going to be average. I'm going to go to 18 months, which is usually when people pass. It's, I'm going to get to that 18 months. And that was the kind of the catalyst for me to change, completely change my negative mindset into a positive. And it was that one run. 
that one bit of exercise that massively transformed. And if I didn't do that, and if my wife hadn't have got me on that run, I don't think I'd probably be here today. So that was down to the fact that you feel like just taking that initial step and just physically moving and changing yeah. that brain chemistry yeah. was enough to, to maybe switch the lights on a little bit and give you a little bit more energy to to goal set and yeah. try and move forwards. Yeah. So then I started tackling it and I thought, right, how, how am I best going to get to that 18 months? And I, I don't think there is ever one magic bullet to defeat cancer. But the way I thought is if, if I get my diet right, if I get my exercise right, if I get my mind right, if I get supplementation, alternative therapies, and then go through the conventional um, gold standard treatment as the um, medical world as the medical world calls it. And I'm giving myself the best chance of getting to that 18 months. So it's almost like you, you were kind of coaching yourself through yeah. that experience <laughs> and that situation and like being yeah. almost two people at the same time. Yeah, I've never thought of it like that. I actually, and I know you've just joked memory, I actually, because I started a blog uh, back then, I actually did it as though it was a fight. So I said, right, round, round one is getting my body, my mind round. Round two was going through um, dual radiotherapy and chemotherapy, and then what, which we'll, I think we're going to go on to in a bit about my full psychiatric breakdown. Round round four would be getting through uh, the six months of six cycles of chemotherapy. Uh, yeah, and the, the kind of I was using it as a fight, how I would usually train for a fight back in the day: nutrition, physical training, mind. Uh, you know. Um, getting that mindfulness right, that visualisation. I applied that. Probably what I'd learned the force is to get into 18 months, which I then surpassed. So you kind of took um, your diagnosis and after that initial period of feeling like, you know, you're helpless to yeah, have any yeah. control over it, you kind of then fell back on um, everything that you you know, you'd lived by, which is, yeah. right, let's look at this from all angles, let's do something with this. And Sorry to interrupt you, but it's also that uh, that you were written off for your bike accident and you proved them wrong then, so why can't you prove them wrong again? And it's that kind of, that's, that's my kind of mentality, I think. If, right, they're saying you're going you're gonna to die within six to eight, well, I'm going to show I'm going to get to 18 months. Was there ever a point during the cancer where that was really difficult to believe in. Yeah, so I was in my um, last week of dual radiotherapy and chemotherapy. So I, I'd have my uh, chemotherapy. So I had to have tablets because it was a brain tumor. You have a blood brain barrier. So I couldn't have it through um, the veins because it wouldn't get to the brain. Um, so I had to have chemotherapy tablets, which are probably just as bad, if not worse. Um, and I'd have that 20 minutes before going for radiotherapy. So going for radiotherapy, I was in my last week. Um, very lucky. Um, I was working for Under Armour at the time as ambassador for him, and I got taken the Rugby World Cup uh, with my wife in 2015, the disastrous one, where we were present when England got beat by Wales in the um, in the group stages. Now Wales have only ever been beaten England twice at Twickenham. Unfortunately, I've been there for one of them. But what was bad, and I should have noticed, I was being sick a lot. But then my wife says, in hindsight, she should have noticed something was going on. I was speaking very quick, quicker than what I do now and quite manic, um, came back on the Sunday. On Monday, I went for a normal, I mean, last week of um, radiotherapy and chemotherapy, I thought, great, got zapped, came home, and I had one single negative thought in the bed. 
that kind of mutated into a panic attack, which then led to a full psychotic breakdown. Um, I suddenly came round and I was outside the front. We were in a close at the time uh, in Sorgo Massey. And I was suddenly outside spinning around in the air. I was like, had my arms out wide looking to the heavens. Um, I thought I'd been enlightened. I thought I was sent down as an angel to cleanse the earth. Um, my wife had come back to check on me as she randomly did. Obviously, she'd seen me have the seizure. She'd seen me go through all this. And she was only working in the community as a nurse at that time where we lived. Um, obviously, she panicked, phoned the, the ambulance. And she laid me down on the grass. But I, I was saying stuff like, it's okay, I can stop time. I can stop this whenever I, I, I want. Um, all I had was this like massive white noise in my ears. So I was shouting everything really loud. My vision had kind of, I've got like really good vision, 2020 vision. And a car pulled into the road and I thought it was one of my mates. So I ran over and started banging on the window to him. It was a guy that I didn't know and he panicked. So to be honest, I'd completely lost it. and was, was away with the fairies. But when you're in that situation, that kind of, that manic episode, you think everything's normal. You think you're right and everyone's wrong. Um, and I was rushed. Ambulance came and I was, um, and I said, yeah, I want the ambulance to come. I want them to come. I want them to see that I am enlightened, that I can stop time. And then I just suddenly would just stop and go, oh, I'm doing this on purpose, by the way. There's nothing wrong with me. And they'd go, what? And then I'd go into this this this, this rant again. Um, and then I slowly started to come out of it in, in Arrow Park Hospitals in Resus. And I spent five days on a day ward, which didn't help me either. Because every time I fell asleep, come around, there'd be new people around me. Um, and I knew I'd had an episode. And I, But every time I spoke, because I had all this noise in my head, nothing came out right. So it did sound as though I'd lost the plot. And a couple of nurses didn't help, really patronised me. And they're like, okay, day, okay, day. So I, did, I stopped speaking. And I think it was about a day away from being sectioned on the Mental Health Act to go to Clatterbridge. And uh, Clatterbridge Oncology Hospital, who were brilliant, sent up this guy who was a... Here we go, a neuropsychologist oncologist who deals with this sort of thing. And I wouldn't speak to anyone. And I, he just made me feel at ease with him. And he talked about meditation and how he uses it to, you know, to calm himself down. Just by speaking quite normally to me and not patronising me, I started to open up a little bit. And it was eventually diagnosed that it had been triggered because I'd been left on dexamethadone. So that's like medical steroids for far too long, too high a doses. And that with the radiotherapy, with the chemo, and that negative thought was just the perfect storm to trigger this, this episode. With everything that you've gone through, with all of the traumas, do you feel a little bit invincible? or do you... <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing because my wife says that. She goes, oh, I'm worried you're going to have a God complex. And then, um, <clears throat> I don't fear much anymore. Right. So I'll take risks, but I'll take calculated risks. I'm not stupid with it. But I probably do take more risk than what I used to. Um, yeah, there's not much I fear anymore. I've not looked death in the face. I make, I've accepted it and come to terms with it. There's not a lot you, you are going to fear, but I'm not stupid with it, so I take calculated risks, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. So you don't, like, engage in stuff to no. just, like, give you a buzz because you feel like you're invincible. And you no, well, I've always been quite a gentleman. I don't like that word, but, you know, um, a downhill mountain bike, a snowboard, a rock climb. Um, you know, I was rugby, motorbikes. I, I, that's that's what I love. I love doing. So, um, so I was always kind of into that adrenaline side of things. And like, so to just just so I was in Portugal, mates got a retreat out there. We were climbing the mountain, and there was we free climbing, but not not like you see on TV that solo climb. It was it was a lot easier. But there was this peak that I probably could have got to, 
So I was running along edge of this wall with a 2,000 foot drop. Right, everyone's like, so I said, no, I'm fine. And then there was this, this, this peak, which I had to scramble up. And I usually I probably could have done it, so I was going to. But it was a bit of a wind, and I thought, right, you could get blown off. So, if, if, so my kind of mantra was, if there's any doubt, and there's no doubt, you don't do it. And so I said, no, I'm not doing it. So I do have that, still that element in my head that says, don't be stupid. <laughs> looking back now on everything you've gone through and looking forwards, have you got, like, a, a new evaluation on life and what's important? Yeah. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I think I had a two-week period where I just thought, and you, you may have had this, obviously I don't know your circumstances, where I just evaluated what my life's been about for two weeks, three weeks, just sat there and thought, what the hell's it all been about? And now I have such an appreciation. So I used to work 14 to 16 hours a day in the police, Monday to Friday. I'd play rugby on a, uh, a Saturday and I'd coach it on a Sunday. That was my life. Now I get to walk my daughter to school. I get to go and watch my lad play like rugby or football uh, for school. I get to go up my, my daughter's really good at drama. I get to go and watch her plays. Uh, I've got better connections with my family. Not that I had a bad bad one there, but, but for, obviously I left home young, uh, quite independent. So I could go, my sister's like my rock now, but I could go two months without speaking to her properly, just by text. Now I find it weird if I've not spoken to her within two days. So you've got a lot more clarity. Oh, clarity. And I don't know that you do. You know, I think at one point I was just working to exist. Now, now I'm, now I'm not. I'm truly existing. I'm being present as opposed to always looking forward. That's fantastic. So that's that's the one thing that it <clears> gives <throat> you more quality of life with everything yeah. you've been through. You can you can see that now from your yeah. experiences. Life's short. You, you don't. It doesn't need a massive seismic event like me to understand that. You know, we don't get. There's no respawns. There's no do agains. There's no start agains. Respawns. You know, scratch. We only have one go at this. So it's about making the most of the time we have now with the people you love the most, doing the things that you want to do. And it shouldn't take being told you've got three months to live or however long for you to realise that. We should all be doing it now. But we get it. Life's fast. It moves at an extreme pace and we get dragged along with it. Welcome yeah. back. I've still got Ryan and Amp with me. And starting with you, mate. And there's a lot to take out of Dave's story, an awful lot. And I had to listen to it a couple of times, really, to just digest everything that was in there. But what was your biggest takeaway from, A, the messages that he had and, and B, the, the life that he's lived? Um, I think anyone who, who's listened to this interview would have realised that I didn't really know what to say when he was telling me any of, the, any of his stories. Um, just the the magnitude of the recoveries and the thing that he things that he's gone through was so hard to even grasp. I mean, it was like he was a Coronation Street character. Like, it, that's the ridiculousness of it. And when we see these these, these people, you don't think you're ever going to meet them. You see them on, like, online and on Twitter videos and they give you a little cry now and then. And um, to actually speak to someone and hear their side of the story and what they went through and, and everything was, was really good. And just really, like we said, inspiring. And, and just to know the limits that a, a human can put themselves or go to, a human can do. And, yeah, it, the biggest takeaway I had from it was just that that problem solving. You know, solve a little problem, solve a little problem. And then once you've solved so many of them, it becomes, you've actually solved quite a lot. You know, that 
to recover from that leg injury and saying, oh, do you know what? I'm not going to do that. I'm going to see if I can do it myself and and get the physio sorted and, and go from there. That first, you know, to have that before everything else was was unbelievable. I think just the the nature of the way he went about it and the self-belief and the drive that he has to, to continue to do that and then not only continue to do that for himself, to help others as well at the same time. Some guy, I'll tell you that, he's some, some guy. Yeah. I think one of the, the things that I, that listening to it that resonated with something, a lot of stuff that you've said, Ant, and a lot of the things that we've spoken about is like the power of exercise, which I know you're very a big advocate of in terms of running particularly. I remember him saying it is, it is like his lowest ebb that like running really got him through. Yeah, absolutely. Running's, you know, I, I, I'm not the, the best runner, the quickest runner. And I think if anyone does take up running, it's been a big thing during this lockdown. Um, don't worry about your time. Don't try and show off what time you've done. You do it in 35 minutes, you do it in 40 minutes, do it in an hour. Just as long as you're out there and doing it because your head's switched off, it's focused on one thing. And you'd be amazed at that release at the end when you finish that run. You go, do you know what? I'm proud of myself there. If you want to take it further and and beat times and, and, and get quicker and quicker and fitter and stronger, then that's great as well. You know, running's there to, and exercise is there to to just focus your mind on something else for, for a little bit and just take those stresses away and it releases all sorts of endorphins and, and the like. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a massively powerful thing. I think Ryan's mentioned it previously as well. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I just think, Starting that that running for Dave and and getting moving again was was probably the the biggest thing of 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 those recoveries. Yeah, absolutely, mate. And I think I mentioned to you before I went out in the park today and did a few sprints. I, I woke up this morning. I watched a little. Uh, I started the last dance, which we've spoken about a few times, and and then I was a bit like we had a couple of hours until we were recording. And I was just a bit so. I thought you know what, go and get out in the sun and. And run about a little bit, and and they took the football with me, and it does it, it as much as anything else. It just kind of freshens you and you're up and and helps your mindset. Ryan, same question to you, mate. What was your what was your biggest takeaway? Yeah, I had a, a long think about this this morning, almost preempting you asking the question. The most important message in the whole interview, I believe, was when Dave said, "You'll have bad days, and it's just about accepting them." And I've re-listened to that part of the interview a few times now. And the more I think about it, the more I want like people to understand listening, what he's saying. Because it's arguably one of the most important pieces of advice you could take away from, I'd say, our interview so so far. For anybody listening who is struggling, and it doesn't matter what your problem is, whether it's physical, mental, or, or even both, to hear him say that those down days are okay. That you'll have days where you want to sit in bed all day, or you'll sit on the couch, you'll eat shit food. That's fine. And it's fine as long as they don't turn into weeks on end. And if you use them to regather your focus, recharge your batteries and take stock, then they play the part. And I think it's almost about riding the waves and battling the tide. And there'll be days when you're thrown out the boat, but it's about getting back on and continuing to row because there'll be calmer waters ahead. And I think Dave actually said in his interview, uh, life is short and it shouldn't take a seismic event like mine to realise that. There's no respawns or do-agains. And I imagine there'll be people listening and thinking, well, I couldn't do that, or I don't have the mentality of the armed forces background to get me through it. And even Ant said to Dave when he was interviewing him, 
I couldn't do that or I wouldn't have done that. But I think the point about it is everybody's battle is like personal to them. It affects them in different ways. And most people in the grand scheme of things, I don't think they'll go through what they've went through. But I think the point remains the same, that your application and your attitude and your acceptance are, are all necessary as part of the recovery. So use your support network, take every day as it comes and just try not to let it define you. Because I think your own mental health or disability or cancer, it's about owning it and not letting it own you without sounding too cheesy and cliche. And it's easy for me to sit here because I'm fortunate enough to say I haven't had 10% of the hardship or, or the trauma that Dave's had and probably still carries with him today. But I like to think that I can take lessons from what he said. And if I did face something similar in the future, I'd like to think I'd put them practicing and teaching and Dave's story in, into practice and, and and I can equip myself with, with some of the things that you said and used. So for me, hands down, the biggest point is have them down days, but make sure they are just a day or two and, and get back to it and, and try and achieve your goals. But don't feel guilty by feeling down, no matter what your problem is, because I think it is all part of that journey. In terms of one of the interesting things I thought was, was that they spoke about that, we've talked about before with some of the footballers that we've had on was those comparisons between the military and professional sport, particularly with football. And I think Dave said that when he was in basic training that they almost broke you down to build you back up. And that in that first few weeks, what they were looking for was people who showed respect, people who could follow instruction and people who would do what they needed to do to be part of that unit. And the comparisons with professional sport and Football, in our case, because that's the conversations that we've had quite a lot, are massive in terms of you have to be able to be part of that collective. And it's very difficult if you don't fit into that mould that they want. And we asked Dave that question specifically, and, and it was nice to, to have that different perspective on it in terms of someone who is A, been a professional athlete, and, you know, also been in the military, that he's been able to highlight those comparisons as well there was a question i actually have for both of you which which kind of comes on the back of dave's kind of military background into his into his sporting life as well he said that from a very young age that if he did a relay race if he played a sporting match you know whatever he did either his dad or his granddad would always find something to say yet even though that was really good you could have done this better and i think the words that he used were that nothing was ever good enough and that came from right from when he was a child. And that seems as though that kind of cemented his determined mindset to always be better. Now, listening to that, I, I had kind of a conflicted view about it. And I was quite curious to get both of your perspectives on it. Do you think that that type of attitude and that type of pushing people, whilst it has, you know, for Dave, has provided him with a mindset that's allowed him to overcome enormous barriers in his life, do you think, as a general rule, that's a, a good thing or a bad thing? What are your kind of thoughts on that? I'll start with you, Ant. Yeah, I, it's been a thing that's been in uh, football coaching a lot recently, you know. Um, but I think they phrase it in a way of, that's good, but can you add this to your game? So I think they came in that way. I think you're still getting that same result of trying to improve and, and you know, add things. I think when, when, it was, when Dave said it, it I agree it didn't sound great you know that that doesn't sound great saying it to a little kid um 
but it's obviously had the right effect um, because he's a determined character and he's he's made a lot of himself and he's done so much stuff um, and he's proud of that stuff as well. It was nice to hear someone who had been in the been in the armed forces and been in you know the police force as well be be quite proud of what they've done and, and proud of what they've achieved. You know, particularly with the last couple of couple of weeks. Um, but no, I, I I think I think it's a good thing. I think I think maybe phrase it in a different way. Maybe add this. Maybe we can add this next time. Maybe we can do this. But I think you're always trying to search for improvements. Even at a, a young age, you're trying to improve. You know, when you're going through school, just basically, you know, you're trying to improve every day. Um, you know, some days you won't be able to. That's fine. Um, but yeah, no, I, I I wasn't too. And maybe the wording was a little bit a little bit different, but. I think it was it's a good mindset to try and teach, you know, let's strive for the best, let's be the best. Yeah, I can I can certainly see the angle you've come from, Dan. Um I, I suppose each each time that happens it requires context. Now we've all seen them dads, haven't we, on the side of a football pitch who were just shouting at the son or and it's just not constructive, it's aggressive and you could see why it would make a young boy or girl fall out of love with whatever the, the sport is they're doing. But I think one thing to remember with Dave's situation is his dad was in the army and his granddad was in the army, who, who he mentioned of being those people who, in his life, giving him that constructive and sometimes quite forceful um, advice on what they could do better. Now, I imagine his dad and his granddad were, were people that were in a position to be able to do that in a way that they knew it would benefit him because they'd been through that regimented structure themselves. They probably knew how far they could push him before it was too far. So I think in Dave's situation, it actually was probably a bit of a godsend because it set him up for, for the rest of his life. Um, every challenge he did, he did it with that competitive nature. I can understand as a rule of thumb, acting that way could maybe be detrimental to others, but I'd caveat that again with saying his dad was probably the most loving dad outside of the competitions, which only maybe made up a small percentage of their relationship. So I wouldn't want to comment too much on, on if it was good or bad for him on an individual basis, but I can certainly see the benefit of ingraining that competitive nature into somebody from a young age and, and also just giving them that benefit of always wanting to strive and achieve more. I think you mentioned before um, you've just started watching The Last Dance about Michael Jordan. Well, mm. certainly wait till you get to the end of that series and it, it sort of covers this quite well um, about people just having that single-track-minded focus on a goal and how powerful it can be. And I think me and Ant have discussed this with yourself on the show before. You can often come across as a, as a bad person when you have that mindset and you don't always make a lot of friends along the way. But you'll certainly achieve most of your goals. So it's difficult, isn't it? I'd... Yeah, all I was going to say is is that I think one of what the interesting sort of dichotomy that it kind of had for me was that I agree that for Dave, because he was the the it, the way that he reacted to it was was in a positive way and that it made him be very resilient and it made him always want to do better, which is why he's been able to achieve so much. I just um, was conflicted by that whole nature of comparison and pushing people and always trying to be the best and then defining what the best is. And I suppose it's coming down to being the best version of yourself that you can be and always accepting that 
it's okay to be you if you're not the best runner or the best sportsman or the most intelligent person or the funniest person then that's fine not everyone can be those people you and i ryan have certainly spoken about uh jordan peterson before and he tells a story doesn't he about a guy that he went to college with who felt very had a really big inferiority complex and it was all based on the fact that he wasn't as successful as his roommate from college and this guy that he was talking about was a very successful academic and was a professor at a, a big university in America and achieved a lot professionally in comparison with probably 90% of his peers. But he still had this big inferiority complex based on who his college roommate was. And when he asked him who his college roommate was, he said Elon Musk. And he said, well, no wonder you feel inferior <laughs> to him. He's Elon Musk. Yeah. He's, yeah. He's, Everybody on the planet feels inferior to Elon Musk in one way or another. If you're making that comparison, it's I don't not know. really a fair comparison to me. I don't know. I think I picked a better name for me kid than he did. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but um, I suppose, though, taking it back to today, the, the army slogan for, for generations has been be the best. So that would have been ingrained in his childhood from living in Germany to having both of his parents in the forces and his grandparents. And yeah, I, I completely agree with what you're saying, Dan. And I suppose it's about judging judging each each individual on the on the basis that that you have. So if it's your child or your son, I think you'll know better than anybody how far you can you can push mm. that really. I think it's- it Sorry, I think in terms of, of, of football specifically, I think you can tailor that approach. I don't think you can do that in something like the army, unfortunately. Um, but in, certainly in football, and I think you're starting to see it now with coaches, you know, they're not all regimented in, a, in the same way. They're, they're completely different. Um, but if you look yeah, I would them, argue, Ant, that they're more regimented now than they've ever been before. Because the stakes are so high and the money's so high, and we, when we spoke with Neville Southall, he spoke about, didn't he, about footballers nowadays are like, they're like generic, they're like robotic. And I think that comes from the fact that you have to fit into this mould of how we how we coach kids now. And how I'd agree with that as well, football. to be fair. And I think that's, I think we've spoken obviously to a handful of people and some of them will be coming up in, in some of the other series mm-hmm. about how if you don't have the right face, if you don't have the right personality type, you're going to struggle. And Luke Moore did say, not everyone can do every job. And that was correct. And I, I agree with that. But I do think that there is certainly needs to be an awareness, particularly in professional sports, that maybe they can be more open to different types of personalities. And maybe that, that might be naive from my perspective. But I do think it creates such a hyper competitive environment that I don't know how healthy that is for people if you happen to be the wrong personality type. Can I just add to that though, Dan? I, I wonder now, because as you've just touched on, it is as regimented as it is. And it is so elitist in any sport now at the top level. It is so elitist that it's sad that some people have had the right personalities and mindset may fall away from the game. But I don't know if it's an inevitability you can get around because yeah, I agree with that. Gonna, if you're going to be the top one percent, which you are, and in some cases less, then to be in a one percent category when you're talking about performance, half of it's mentality as well as physical. I I, I don't know if it can exist. 
Do you know what I mean? You know what though? Then it, it takes it back to that conversation about why do we have sport? Why does it exist? Like, I know that sport now is always striving for those inches and to be the 1% and to, to continually improve. But is the product of professional sport any more enjoyable because of that? I'd say it probably is, but I suppose I've only lived through my own generation. Uh, I can't really comment. Everyone's generation will say, and we're probably guilty of it in our late 20s, saying our oh, football was well better 10 years ago. And we've we had like less than three decades of it. Whereas you'll talk to maybe your parents or someone else, and they'll say, "Oh, the eighties was definitely the best." So I suppose it's hard to to judge. You can only judge what you've seen. I think the product has got better, but I don't think everything that comes with it has got better. So I think the players on the pitch are the best they've ever been, the fittest they've ever been. I think tactically they was good, but I think football's come away from what it was, which was community led, family spirited. Saturday three o'clock. I think we've inherited a lot of a lot of shit to be honest with you, to put it in a better word, with the product improving. But maybe maybe you can't have one without the other. Maybe you have to have the Sky Sports and the the Monday night kickoffs and the sort of sanitized environment that it now comes with to have these robotic players. Yeah, because I kind of think back to I mean, for me, it, it, it almost comes back to that idea of what is the what is the purpose of this thing? And I agree, the product on the pitch, certainly, and you know, at the top level, the Champions League and the Premier League is it's unbelievably high the standard, almost to the point where you wonder how much better it can get. Does it make it more entertaining now than it maybe was? I don't know. It's just something that that occurred to me in terms of that environment and how that environment treats people, and we've seen it in terms of lots of different stuff with how it can discard people if they don't fit that mould. And the minute that you're not a viable commodity and a valuable commodity to the game, you instantly become disposable because you're not treated as a human and an individual. You're purely treated as a pawn and a chess piece within the larger you know, economics of the game. You know when you're talking about robotic players, do you just mean on the pitch? I think both on the pitch and off the pitch as well. Right, well, if it's off the pitch, there's probably a bigger reason for that, which is they're very afraid to say anything. And I think you've seen that for years and years and it's crept in. It's only recently that they've actually had to come out. But when they do come out and say something, they're not usually pushed into a corner, particularly with the, the NHS situation earlier on in the year. I, I miss those days of characters, but I think they are characters that just often quite away from the limelight so they're kept in their own little clubs as characters and when they're introduced to to the wider public they're just shouted at and, and shouted down and, and told that they're idiotic and they can't have banter I think you've seen it a lot with um, was it Andy Robertson everyone seems to not like him at the moment and it's a bit weird because well, he's suppose a, bit, it's... a little bit we... outgoing Ryan and I were talking the other night actually about one of the nicest things that's come out of doing these interviews has been generally, we've probably interviewed about 15, 20 either current or former footballers. And I can't think of any of them that wasn't really, really sound. Like they were all really generous with their time, very honest. All of them at the end had said, oh, you know, if I can do anything to help out, let me know. If you need me to try and speak to someone to get on the show, let me know. And a disappointing thing, I suppose, for me is that 
you'd often see footballers get a bit of a bad rep. And I think a lot of that might come down to the fact that you never actually get to see their personality. And we've spoken to so many of them and they're all in their own way, very different people as are anybody. And they've all got their own different quirks and stuff. And I just feel like maybe it would be nicer to get more of a feel for the personalities, which in essence, in a way, the biggest selling point of professional sport is the, the personalities that come with it, the stories, the human stories that come with it. Because ultimately, you know, your team can win a game, another team's going to win a game. In 10 years' time, it'll all kind of level itself out and you'll probably be where you were 10 years ago. But it's the people that are within it, the characters within the game. I mean, in our club, the players that we remember the most, I'm talking from recent times, Ian Goodison, a lot of that was, you know, a lot of that was because he was an excellent footballer, but a lot of it was also because he was a very different type of personality than we're used to having. James Norwood's another one. He scored a lot of goals for us, but he was also a big character on the pitch and people like that. And I know that we're all kinds of, wanting to see the best and wanting the team to win. But I think what we buy into is the connection, the human connection. I know you and I certainly spoke about it the other day, right? Yeah, I think we've had, I mean, we've had people like journalists on the show and, and again, like the players, they've been fantastic people like Delaney and Anke and Rob Watton. So I, I don't want to at all bash the media, but what I want to say is that the players can only ask the questions that are put to them. And I think that's part of the problem. And I think Klopp hit the nail on the head early this season when they were on the verge of winning the league, coronavirus happened, and all of a sudden he's getting all these questions about lockdown and what the government's doing. And he just turned around and said, how do I know? I'm a football manager. Go ask a scientist. Go ask somebody who studies infectious yeah. disease. And that's the problem is we expect these players to answer questions that all right, they might have their own personal opinion on. But you're asking, you're asking them with a TV camera in front of them and you're kind of like, is that appropriate? And then when they do have an opinion on my Twitter, which is something that you'll see on this series with Joe Lolly, is that um, they then get the whole wire footballs commenting on that and you kind of like, they can't win because you either ask them yeah. about it and you shouldn't or when they have an opinion, you're like, just kick a football around, mate. It brings me back to, um, it's not really sport related, but Anybody who's ever listened to the comedian Dave Chappelle, he does this really famous joke about um, after the tragedy of 9 11, and MTV had Ja Rule on the phone, and they're like, let's see what Ja Rule thinks. And he goes, who the fuck gives a f- who cares what Ja Rule thinks at a yeah. time like this? Like, why have you asked a celebrity? And it's that it brings you back to the whole thing that people just want to hear sportsmen and celebrities say things. And then they want to analyse it and then they want to rip it apart and then they want to judge on it. And you're kind of like, can't they just stick to the sport and just let them be humans outside of that and let them have an opinion on things when they want to have an opinion? Don't force it in front of them, force a microphone in front of them and say, what are your thoughts on this? And then do a headline on it. And I I do feel a bit sorry for them in that sense. Yeah, I agree. And as I say, in terms of the robotic personalities, I'm certainly not blaming the players for that. And I certainly don't think that they are without personality. I just think that they're a product of the environment. And I just don't know how healthy the environment is. So, thanks for listening today, uh, Ryan. And, as usual, thanks for your time today, lads. Yeah, no problem. Pleasure, mate. And our next episode will be out a week today, beyond Monday the 22nd of June. We'll be speaking with uh, Mark from Opening Up Cricket, so that should be really interesting. We'll 
be delving into a, a slightly different sport. You can always find us on the Twitter as usual at marking underscore man. Don't forget to use the hashtag where's the talking lads. And we're now going to leave you with Dave Bolton's quickfire and we'll see you next Monday. First off, it is often said that neat and tidy appearance is important in the armed forces. So how good are you at ironing? Yeah, I'm the best at ironing. Uh, ask the wife. I won't even let her, uh, when I used to be in the police, I wouldn't let her wear, uh, iron me uh, shirts. She'd always put tram lines in it. Oh, no. <laughs> so I don't like ironing because you get battered by it, but I am a good ironer, yeah. In, in recent months, Dean Windass has been promoting the positive impact making your bed can have on your well-being. Do you still make your bed every morning? Yeah, I do. Mrs. would kill me if I didn't. <laughs> she's up earlier than me now, <laughs> especially at the moment. So, you know, always make the bed, definitely. I don't like living with clutter, like messy. I don't know that it's that's obviously the armed forces because I wasn't like that as a, as a, as a Dave, kid. The so, biggest mess bill you've ever had. Oh, dear God. You know, it's not that bad because it was so cheap in, in the forces. Yeah. So it wasn't that bad, but I was probably talking about about £140, which is probably about nearly a grand out in City Street. Honestly, <laughs> 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 I took my mate once on, on camp, and then it's when you could smoke indoors. I've never smoked. But he bought a pack of cigarettes, two pints, two vodka uh, and Red Bulls, as it was back then. Came on, he come back and went, I've got change of a fiver. And I said, yeah, well, welcome to the forces. <laughs> <laughs> Is, what's your favourite memory from your time in the army? Um, being out in, in on tour in, um, in in the desert, in Air Ops, Iraq. Um, I just loved it out there. When we were back home, it was boring. And it was one of the main reasons why I left. In the end, I just didn't feel as though I was living up to what I should be. But when I was out there, it was on patrol. I was working with um, uh, the Americans, which was a story on itself. I just I just loved being out there. Oh, probably as well, if you play sport, I played uh, rugby for the RAF, so I, got to, I didn't do much work. Yeah, you just get a, you'd say, oh, uh, Sarge, I need to go and leave for, for, for this. And he said, no. And I said, well, you better phone up the, uh, the uh, CEO. <laughs> and um, you got to travel a lot, so I got to go out and play Activity 7s. Uh, I missed out going to Australia on tour because I'd, uh, I'd got a premature voluntary release. So it'd be either be playing, uh, representing the force um, uh, at rugby or um, a time out in the, uh, in, in the desert. Dave, did you, uh, did you watch the bill when you were younger? A little, not massively. Oh, I was going to say, did that, I was, did it not, that might have inspired you to, to join, the, uh, join the coppers when you were a bit older. I think I what I thought it probably inspired me not to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when you did your, your police training, Dave, did you pour um, parvin and CS gas in your eye? Um, no, we, when we were in basic training for uh, the RAF, you have to get gassed. They put you in a gas chamber and they put you with CS. Yeah. And, and then you've got to go say your name, your rank and your number and you start off really fine. It's like, they both and they won't let you out. <laughs> laughing their heads off at you, and you could literally. Come and, see. and then they told us to get a, sh a shower when we got back, and all you heard was twenty six blokes screaming because it just sets it off again. Yeah. <laughs> what is your favourite army or war film? Go. Oh, Got to be fast. Right. Um, <laughs> Thirteen hours in in uh, Benghazi, I think it is. That was a good one. Uh, Lone Survivor. Uh, I love that film. Yeah. Oh my god, Bradley Cooper's amazing! It yeah, we'll go Lone Survivor. Have you um, have you seen Kajaki, Dave? 
Well, I'm thinking of American Sniper. I like that because Mark Wahlberg's Lone Survivor, American Sniper. That, yeah, that's Bradley Cooper, isn't it? I have cancer. I live with it every single day, knowing that this ticking time bomb in, in, in my head could go off at any time. But I'm not governed by the situation that I find myself in. I'm governed by my thoughts and my actions, and my thoughts and actions are positive, and I choose not to fuel it. I choose not to accept it. That's exactly, exactly the same situation that we find ourselves in now that you find yourselves in. Don't let this lockdown govern your actions. Or make sure your actions and your thoughts are positive. But it's important to talk and be open. I'm very open with my uh, battles with mental health and I talk about it a lot. And that's because I want to inspire others to do the same. That it isn't a sign of weakness to talk about mental health about your problems, about your struggles. It's okay not to be okay. But it's also very important that we as a nation also look for the signs in others, our friends, our families. Pick up the phone, speak to someone you haven't spoke to for a while, ask them how their day is, how they're doing. That single phone call could be so valuable to someone's day, to someone's week, someone's life. Hope.